America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation for God's green earth. It is a great day when Republicans are celebrating. No, not down at CPAC. That's another story. Republicans in Washington, D.C. are celebrating what the Wall Street Journal calls the first big victory of the Republican majority in the House of Representatives. What is it? It has to do with what should be the biggest issue for Republicans right now to develop and to address and to actually make things better wherever they can. That issue is the issue of crime and the number of recidivist criminals who are on the streets of our major cities and raising the rates of violence and the rates of insecurity and the rates of despair on the part of the American people. There's a piece by Daniel Henninger, who's going to be joining us later in the show from the Wall Street Journal, saying that Americans are in a sour mood. Well, that's obvious. Uh, the overwhelming majority of Americans think that uh, we are headed in the wrong direction. But does this sour me mood mean people just checking out or not caring uh, or turning away from uh, what is going on in the United States? Or does it actually indicate that people are getting serious about changing the status quo and actually maybe going back to a healthier pattern for this great country. Uh, Tim Scott is one of those people who I think is putting his presidential campaign, which is not quite announced yet, but it is getting closer and closer. It's going to be a positive presidential campaign which is a terrific thing and I think a very good idea for the opposition party to go after the Biden administration, not by simply talking about all of the mistakes the Biden administration has made, but what it is that we need to do and what we can do better and in a more hopeful way. Uh, the um, Daniel Henninger writes, there's a more positive way to view the nation's dark mood. Sourness suggests a moody funk with nothing visible but the bottom. That's not what we are now. That's not where we are now. What's emerging instead is an active dissatisfaction with the political and cultural status quo in America with the intention of growing to, with the intention growing to replace it. Uh, here is uh, Senator Tim Scott. This is clip number one uh, about the need to celebrate American greatness over American grievance. Listen. There's no doubt that one of the amazing, the radical left continues to push this narrative that America is all about grievance. We know we're all about greatness. They believe that this is not the land of opportunity, it's the land of oppression. Nothing could be further from the truth. I love the Faith in America tour because I'm actually getting positive feedback that Americans are ready for an optimistic, positive, yet conservative message about where we're going as a nation and why we are truly one nation under God. Okay, uh, this is a promising beginning to a presidential campaign. And uh, concerning that uh, Republican victory that uh, the Wall Street Journal is talking about and celebrating, and, and I think rightfully so, it's a, it's a very important victory having to do with a, a veto that didn't happen. There's a lot of publicity 
involving Biden's first veto as president. That was on a bill that is very difficult for anybody to understand. It has to do with the managers of uh, retirement funds uh, being allowed to have a political considerations with their investments. It's complicated. But not complicated is this. Uh, the Wall Street Journal writes Republicans in the new Congress are heading for their first big victory. President Biden said yesterday that he will not veto a resolution to overturn a District of Columbia law that eases sentences on carjackings, burglaries, and other felonies if it passes the Senate. The House passed the resolution last month, 250 to 173, with 31 Democrats joining the GOP majority. Senate Democrats have been debating how to handle the resolution, and blocking it became harder when West Virginia's Joe Manchin said, yes, he would vote for it. We were wrong last month when we suggested the resolution would need to overcome 60-vote filibuster. As a privileged revolution, it needs only a simple majority. And it looks like it's going to get it in the Senate, and Joe Biden is accepting that by saying, no, he won't veto. Congress has oversight authority of the District of Columbia under the U.S. Constitution, writes the Journal. Though it hasn't overturned one of its laws in more than 30 years, this one deserves it. Crime has spiked in the district, as in many big cities, and it defies all common sense to go easier on criminals when they are piling up victims. Uh, crime continues to be a democratic political vulnerability thanks to defund the police and progressive prosecutors elected with George Soros backing. Chicago's repudiation of incumbent Lori Lightfoot and this week's mayoral primary in which crime was the dominant issue reinforced that political message. Mr. Biden doesn't want to give Republicans an easy opening on crime in 2024. Well, maybe that means actually going across the country and doing something about it. Uh, there are all kinds of challenges on the local level. We're going to be talking a little bit later this hour to the Washington Policy Center about this stunning $131 million budget deficit for the next school year for the Seattle public schools. How is that even possible? The public schools uh, were basically closed down for a long time in the immediate past. Uh, they, meanwhile, got literally uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of federal aid because of the pandemic. And yet now they're looking at having to lay off uh, major staff members. And uh, they are facing uh, an emergency uh, that, that has to do with cost reductions that are necessary for the school system right now. They pay $24,000 per student. So it's twice the national average. And what do we get for it? We'll be speaking to the Washington Policy Center about that. Uh, this is all difficult. There, there is actually a headline about the state of the Democratic Party. There's lots of information about the Republicans and some extreme Republicans railing uh, against support and survival of Ukraine. I, can you believe it? Would you really believe that it would be better off for Russia to actually win this war and to uh, end the independence and sovereignty of the nation of Ukraine? How does that help the United States? How does that involve putting America first? 
these questions and more, plus the truth about immigration, uh, an indication that a lot of what we have been hearing in media again and again and again is simply not true. And it may be exactly the reverse of what you hear. Uh, we will get to that as well on the Michael Medved show. Plus, later in the show, we'll talk about on the eve of Oscars. Uh, no, it's not this weekend, but it's next weekend, so it's coming up. Uh, some of the uh, big new movies that are released today. One of them, actually, uh, to my surprise, because it didn't sound like it was worth anything at all, there's one film that's pretty good. Uh, we will get to that as well on the Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. And also, let's talk a little bit about why it is that the Murdoch uh, conviction and the Murdoch trial has been such a fascinating subject for so many people. Well, sure, it's dramatic. I mean, uh, uh, a wealthy, powerful guy with every advantage absolutely ruins his life and destroys himself. Uh, something to be learned from that? Yeah, I think something even for the whole country. We will get to that and more. Coming up on the Medved Show, 1 800 955 1776. Michael Medved. He has control over this world. This is the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, I I can't remember uh, too many trials that have gotten the kind of attention that the Alex Murdoch trial has received. And apparently, uh, by the way, because it's spelled M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H, uh, there's all kinds of arguments about the right way to pronounce this last name. He and his family, and his family has been uh, a very powerful legal family in South Carolina for 80 years. In fact, one of the interesting details about this case is that apparently there was a, a painting, a portrait of his grandfather, who was a leading prosecutor in South Carolina, on the wall of the courtroom in which Alex Murdoch was being tried for the assassination, for the brutal murder of his uh, son and uh, of of his wife. Uh, there is a surviving son who, uh, by the way, had been assigned some of the money beforehand. The, the amazing thing about this story is that even the jurors say that. What, what they have not been able to explain is, other than just pure evil and viciousness, uh, what the, the motive would have been to kill his wife and son. What the prosecution was saying at the trial, it turned out, was that, um, that the, the wife and son were killed in order to create sympathy for Alex Murdoch to beat uh, prosecution on some of the financial crimes. And they're very elaborate. He's being accused of st having stolen hundreds of thousands of dollars from clients 
and from law partners and running one of the shadiest uh, law firms that uh, that you can know of here. The um, uh, in their closing pitch to the jurors at Alex Murdoch's murder trial yesterday. Prosecutors made sure to thank an unlikely figure, a witness to the slayings who could not be called to the stand in the six weeks of testimony, but whose presence at the scene of the crime ultimately proved pivotal. That was Bubba, who is a Labrador retriever, who, by the way, in this entire horrible story, Bubba is about the most sympathetic figure. Uh, thank God for Bubba, Prosecutor John Meadows said in his closing statement before the jury ultimately convicted Alex of murdering his wife and younger son after less than three hours of deliberations. Bubba was one of several Murdoch family dogs at the kennels on the night Maggie and Paul were killed on June seventh, two 2021 at their rural hunting lodge property in South Carolina. Yeah, the family had a lot of money. The dog also became something of a recurring character at the trial, with witnesses repeatedly describing the yellow lab as a rambunctious animal with a penchant for chasing chickens and guinea fowl. Only Alex appeared to have a special control over the dog, something that was captured on footage filmed by Paul himself just minutes before Paul was killed. It took authorities months to crack into Paul's locked iPhone after the murders, but when they actually finally found the video, it quickly became the most important piece of evidence in the entire trial. It destroyed Alex's alibi and proving he'd been lying to authorities. It was the one thing the lawyer hadn't accounted for as he meticulously planned the murders, prosecutors argued. The 50 seconds of footage showed Paul... Uh, trying to corral a friend's dog. Paul is the son who got murdered, right? Uh, Cash, who was temporarily staying in the Murdoch kennels. Paul had been concerned about the dog's tail and wanted his friend's opinion, but they could not successfully have a video call due to weak cell phone reception on the property. Paul then apparently filmed the video to send to his friend, but never got the chance to do so. The thing about the video is uh, that you heard Alex Murdoch's voice on it. And he had said he was nowhere near the scene of the crime when the crime was committed. He, in fact, had claimed that he was visiting his mother, who has dementia, and couldn't testify credibly because of her dementia. The uh, entire thing is that that video that was filmed by Paul minutes before his father killed him and killed his mother, father's wife, uh, all of that is is lurid and it's crazy, but it exposes what was the key weakness in the prosecution case. What was the big weakness in the prosecution case? What's the motive? Uh, he was already separated or somewhat separated from his wife. Uh, they apparently had a tough time getting along. It looks like for Alex Murdoch, who was increasingly... Uh, using opioids and other drugs and was just a miserable, lousy, dishonest guy who cheated his family members and best friends and anybody uh, who could approach him, but uh, planned this murder. But the point is, what's the point of the murder? What the prosecution said is that the point of the murder was to create sympathy for him 
so he wouldn't get prosecuted or convicted on other charges, financial-based charges. This is what it sounded like when Alex Murdoch was found guilty after just three hours of, uh, of jury deliberation. And the jury has now said that they started out their deliberation already with uh, nine of the 12 votes they needed for conviction. Two others who thought, well, maybe he's not guilty and one who was not sure. But nine were already sure of the guilt of the accused. Here is the way the verdict was announced. Listen. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch defendant. Indictment for murder, SC code 16-3-0010. CDR code 0116. Okay. Guilty verdict signed by the four lady 3223. Docket number 2022 GS 15-00593. The state of South Carolina, County of Colleton, in the Court of General Sessions, the July term of 2022. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch, defendant, indictment for murder. SC code 16-3-0010, CDR code 0116, verdict guilty, signed by the four lady, date 3-2 of 23. And then the judge, Judge Newman, uh, spoke about the heartbreaking nature of this trial. We will get to that in just a moment. There was actually something you almost never hear which is uh, the judge giving his opinion uh, as uh, uh, the convicted uh, Murdoch said, no, he still maintains his innocence, which is kind of difficult to do when they have his voice on tape uh, right around his son and his wife moments before they were killed, especially given the fact that he had sworn that no, he was not there at the time that he was taped being there. We will get to that and more coming up on the MedVet Show. announcements from the world of education uh, right here in Seattle and uh, <laughs> one of the biggest and most incomprehensible announcements is a 131 million dollar budget deficit for the next school year the uh, uh, this is going to lead to layoffs it could lead to school consolidations the closing of schools this for a school board and a school district that pays the unbelievable total of $24,000 per student, which is one of the highest levels in the country, one of the higher levels in the country, certainly, and uh, without any corresponding results. So to figure out what's going on 
It is a pleasure to welcome uh, Liv Finna, who is the director of the Center for Education at Washington Policy Center. Prior to that position, she served as an adjunct scholar focusing on education policy issues, authoring in-depth studies, including an overview of school funding in Washington State. Uh, Liv, thanks very much for joining us again. How is it possible with the schools closed through so much of the pandemic that they ended up with this tremendous budget deficit for operating uh, our public schools? Oh, it's, it's an amazing development, especially given the reality that the federal government sent Washington State uh, a, a total of $2.8 billion in federal COVID relief spending for the schools that we received in three waves of funding. The third wave is still being spent. And I look today to see how much the Seattle Public School has received in this funding. And interesting, it's very close to the, the deficit that you cited. They, they, they've received $115 million in federal COVID relief spending. So what I'm seeing play out is that these districts, instead of using it to help children recover from their COVID learning loss, which is what they should be spending this money on, they have added staff, paid their existing staff more, and basically run through this federal money. And of course, the, the, the golden spending moment comes to an end. It's coming to an end. And, and, you'll, and therefore, they're talking about uh, having to lay off people, having to close school buildings. And don't forget the fact that 4,700 families have taken their children out of Seattle Public Schools since the COVID school shutdowns. So they are getting less money from the state now because families are just so dissatisfied with the actual quality of service being provided by this, dis- this district in particular. So uh, uh, wouldn't defenders of the school system, the Seattle Public Schools SPS, the largest school district in the state, of course, wouldn't defenders of this district say, well, they had to spend all this extra money to avoid a teacher strike, uh, which nobody wanted? Is is that why we are where we are? Is it a gr- greedy unions? Uh, what's the story there? Partly. Go ahead. Partly. Remember, last fall, there was a five-day teacher strike. Here, we, here were the parents of Seattle Public School children who had been denied access to their schools for nearly two years. They're inter- their schooling interrupted unnecessarily for a large part of that time. And the school said, okay, said the Seattle Public School said, okay, come back to school on X day in September. And lo and behold, what happens? There's a strike. The union calls a strike to extort from the district additional funding uh, for their pay and benefit package. And so they were on strike for five days. I, I remember the kids in my neighborhood saying, I can't believe we can't, we can't go back to school after all this time that kept the schools closed, and now they're not even opening because of a strike, an illegal strike, by the way, that the union just pays no attention to, uh, the no-strike clauses in their contract, et cetera, et cetera. They just run over the district uh, administrators. The administrators knew they had extra funding, and so this is what's happening. It's being diverted uh, from the intent of the of Congress to help districts recover from COVID to uh, – self-interested parties in the in the district. I know that with your work for the Washington Policy Center, and people should look up some of the research and the hard work that Lee Finna has done here, which is very important and very valuable. But uh, 
is there anything that can be done to redeem this awful situation with these layoffs pending and these reductions paying and school consolidations? Anything that can be done in Olympia by the state government? Well, the state government could pass a bill. It's House Bill 1615, which is an education savings account bill that would give families $10,000 of the $24,000 that are being spent in the schools right now in Seattle Public Schools, $10,000, an education savings account, so families could educate their children themselves, pay private school tuition. And And that bill would give families with special needs children an additional $10,000. So if you had a special needs child in the Seattle Public Schools, you could get $21,000 from this education savings account bill. That bill was introduced in Olympia this session. It's a really good bill. It follows the model that is catching fire across the nation of universal school choice. You've heard about it in Arizona where you can get seven, $8,000 in an education savings account to send your child to private school, even a private religious school in Arizona. That was followed up by Iowa in, in late January, just two months ago, uh, and then by uh, the state of Utah. So, uh, and now Texas and Arizona and, and Florida and Nebraska and uh, Oklahoma and even Idaho are considering school choice bills. This is, this is the way of the future to give parents control over a portion of the state's funding so that they can they can educate their children, number one, but number two, provide a needed corrective and a competitive force that would force these districts to uh, run their their school districts better than they do now by getting rid of bad teachers, by spending within their means, by in reintroducing, you realize they've cut out the uh, honors program for kids, you know, on equity basis uh, in Seattle Public Schools. So if you have a highly gifted child, you can't get you can't get access to those uh, services any longer because it doesn't fit within the ideology of the system. So no wonder families are putting families with means are pulling their kids out of Seattle public schools. They're not staying there because the system is no longer perceived by the families to be serious about educating their children. So if if people are receiving ten thousand dollars, or if they did receive ten thousand dollars in the school choice. Uh, legislation uh, that you're saying is worthy of support. Um, how would that work for a typical family? In other words, uh, if you homeschooled your child, would you be able to take the full $10,000 or would you have to apply that money as a tuition for a private or parochial school? No, you could use it if you were homing your home. If you, if we pass this bill to give every family an education savings account with ten thousand dollars in it you could the families could use it for any education purpose that what it's done like this a family would get a a bank account an education savings account that is administered by the state treasurer and overseen and audited to make sure that the money is used for that purpose but the money can only be used for education purposes but it can be done to use to homeschool children you can use the money for buying uh curricula. You can use that money to buy uh, behavioral um, uh, services, uh, cutting edge uh, educational services, tutoring services, or private school tuition if you want to go that way. All right. So you, you could actually, what's so great and exciting and op, 
and 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 positive about education savings accounts that, that it allows families to customize the program of education to meet the needs of the child and that's of course what we absolutely need this is so important and part of the great work of the washington policy center go to our website michaelmedved.com click on the big green banner for the wpc the washington policy center and you can look up all of the invaluable work performed here by leave Vena. uh we will be right back on the medved show Michael Medved show. Uh, we were speaking a little bit, really, for the first time on this show at any length about the now that it's over, about the uh, Murdoch trial and the guilty verdict for Alex Murdoch. He has uh, two different life sentences uh, that are supposed to be served concurrently. Now, it, I, to serve a life sentence concurrent with another life sentence kind of means you have more than one life. Uh, so I'm not sure what it really means is that the judge is very determined here, Judge Newman, to make sure that this extremely troubled and evil human being uh, does not see the light of day again. Because it's not just the murder of his wife and his, uh, his older son, but it is the... Um, uh, all of the crimes involved with his business associates and clients and, and many, many more. Uh, this is the audio from the courtroom. And what's interesting uh, is you can hear the judge issuing his verdict and putting it in context. And then uh, Alex Murdoch himself responding. Uh, clip 17. This has been perhaps one of the most troubling cases, not just for me as a judge, uh, for the state, for the defense team, as a member of the legal community and a well-known member of the legal community, uh, you've practiced law before me and we've seen each other at various occasions throughout the years and it was especially heartbreaking for me to see you um, go on, go in the media from being a, a grieving father who lost a wife and a son to being the person indicted and convicted of killing them. And uh, here is Alex Murdoch himself. Uh, and it was really his own testimony that helped to put him uh, in this situation. But he is still insisting on his innocence. Listen. And I tell you again, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife Maggie. And I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son Papa. Well, and it might not have been you. It might have been uh, the monster you become when you 
take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills, maybe you become another person. Uh, this is a juror in uh, the uh, Murdoch murder trial who uh, spoke with Good Morning America. This is after the conviction, uh, talking about why he ended up voting to convict this uh, cold-blooded killer. Uh, listen, the clip. He started deliberating, going through the evidence. Everybody was pretty much talking. And about 45 minutes later, we, after all our deliberating, we figured it out. If you really look at everything, it's 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 all plain and clear. I didn't think much of them. Really? Really. I didn't see any true remorse or any compassion or anything. Even though he was, he, he cried a lot on the he, stand. He never cried. He never cried. What do you mean by that? All he did was blow snot. Did you not see tears? No tears. How did you know he wasn't crying? Because I saw his eyes. I was as close to him. And uh, again, um, it was obviously a desperation move for the defense to put uh, Alex Murdoch on the stand. And uh, that was the testimony that riveted America. It was covered by a number of cable networks' lives. Uh, and here is the commentary by somebody who's not a professional legal commentator, but uh, somebody who had a much better outcome of his murder trial, despite the abundance of evidence against him and uh, indicating that he was, in fact, a murderer of his wife. Uh, and so here is cutting-edge commentary from the one and only O.J. Simpson. After the police officers had testified in my case, uh, all of the sheriff's department, they ran the jail, not the prison, but they ran the jail, and that's where I was being housed. Uh, they said, you're going home. And I said, well, how can you guys be so sure? They said, when a jury sees somebody as lying, especially police officers, uh, they won't convict. And like it or not, those police officers, it was pretty uh, apparent that they were lying about stuff. Well, uh, that seemed to be the case here with Murdoch. The one thing that the jury must have seen is that the guy's a liar, and once the guy's a liar, you can't believe anything he says. Now, I thought, and as I said, I didn't watch the whole case, so I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not qualified to render a judgment one way or the other because I didn't watch it all. But I know the guy's a liar. It's hard for me to think that he could have... Uh, been on the stands five, six, seven days and without lying, and I guess that's where the jury saw it. In any event, it's done. It's over now. <laughs> Down goes Murdoch. I'm just saying. Take care. Uh, actually, one of the more peculiar public figures in the country are there's still uh, folks out there who believe that... Uh, that O.J. Simpson himself was not a liar. Uh, and if you, if you remember, I mean, uh, the, the details of his trial, 
And, uh, of course, he ended up spending time in prison, but that was for a, a different crime entirely. Uh, meanwhile, not on a criminal note, but on uh, a note from uh, Senator Tim Scott, who is a senator from South Carolina, not uh, talking about his uh, gratitude versus grievance, talking about his American Greatness Tour, not his American Grati- uh, Grievance Tour. He um, he went after President Biden uh, because it's very possible he's one of those people who could be a Republican nominee to replace the current president. Uh, this is Senator Tim Scott on uh, uh, Joe Biden and his trouble maintaining the confidence of the American people. Uh, clip 16. One thing we know about this president is he doesn't seem to want to be honest with the American people. Every time there's an option for him to tell the truth and the whole story, he, he, he pivots away. We've seen that recently and we'll continue to see that. That's one of the reasons why elections have major consequences. The American people want to have confidence in their institutions of government. They're losing it because our president is not telling the truth all the time. Uh, tough, uh, not a different level of lying, of course, from what OJ is talking about and what Murdoch was illustrating. There's also a confrontation between uh, two uh, black members of Congress, one Republican, one Democrat, Byron Donalds of Florida versus Jamal Bowman of New York on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. What were they arguing about? Uh, who's going to be elected in 2024? Listen. It's cool I have two people in my state that could be president. I don't know about New York. I'm, that's all I'm going to say, though. That's who all I'm going to say. They could be president. Who? DeSantis? Right, who's the second guy? Second person. Second. So oh, come on, now. You already know that's Trump and Ron. Trump and Ron? It's Trump and Ron. That's two different people, man. So Trump claims Florida now? He don't claim New York you anymore? Know he been, wow. he been claim Florida. Lee Biden will kill both of them. Biden passed three bipartisan like, pieces you know what that, of legislation. You know what that's like? You know what that's like? Biden. That's like saying Josh Allen is better than Patrick Mahomes. Biden. Uh, Josh Allen is better than Patrick Mahomes. Uh, look, the one thing about this is that it illustrates something I was speaking to you about a couple of days ago, which is there are people who are beginning to talk, and there's an example that Byron Donalds is doing it, seeming to suggest that the two guys from Florida, uh, DeSantis and Trump, put away their enmity and share a ticket. There is only one problem with that. The problem is the 12th Amendment to the Constitution that says that if there are two guys who are both inhabitants of Florida and they are on a ticket as presidential nominee and vice presidential nominee, well, then that's a problem because they would have to forfeit the electoral votes of Florida, which any Republican would need to win if it's a closed election. So what is to be done? There's inspiration here from Dick Cheney. But we will get to that and more in this greatest nation on God's green earth. For special discounts on history shows, check out.